I need you to know that this morning we're celebrating communion following the sermon. So um, we have individual communion servings for you to pick up over here by the door in the basket. So please know that uh, you are free to move around during my sermon or sleep during my sermon or go and pick up the communion elements during the sermon or after the sermon. Um, Please be free. For the next few months, we're going to be in Luke's gospel. For the summer, we were in 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st Kings. But for the next few months, we're going to be in Luke's gospel, reading texts that are unique to Luke. um, And thinking about what we are gathering, what we are getting out of practicing the faith together. Today, I want to consider love or neighbors as what we are getting, what we are gathering when we practice the faith. The scripture passage unique to Luke's gospel is from the 10th chapter of the gospel, beginning with verse 25. Just then a scholar of the Hebrew scriptures tried to trap Jesus. The scholar said to Jesus, teacher, what must I do to experience the eternal life? And Jesus, answering with a question, what is written in the Hebrew scriptures? How do you interpret their answer to your question? And the scholar replied with what you and I know as the Shema. We sang it earlier. Let's recite it together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The scholar said to Jesus, you shall love. Love the eternal one, your God, with everything you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, perfect. Your answer is correct. Follow these commands and you shall live. The scholar was frustrated by this response because he was hoping to make himself appear smarter than Jesus. And so he said, ah, but who is my neighbor? Jesus said, this fellow was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho when some robbers mugged him. They took his clothes, beat him to a pulp, left him naked and bleeding and in critical condition. By chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw the wounded man, he crossed over to the other side and passed by. Then a Levite, who was on his way to assist in the temple, also came and saw the victim lying there, and he too kept his distance. Then a despised Samaritan journeyed by. When he saw the fellow, he felt compassion for him. The Samaritan went over to him, stopped the bleeding, applied some of the first aid, and put the poor fellow on his donkey. He brought the man to an inn and cared for him through the night. The next day, the Samaritan took out some money, two days' wages to be exact, and he paid the innkeeper, saying, please take care of this fellow, and if it isn't enough, I'll repay you the next time I pass through. Which of these three proved himself a neighbor to the man who had been mugged by the robbers? The scholar said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said, well, then go and behave like that Samaritan. 
This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some of you know that a couple of weeks ago, I uh, took a trip to Philadelphia uh, to take my daughter there. We drove, and she will live there and go to school there. The trip went very well. She is good. Um, she had some flooding this week. She lives right on the Schuylkill River, so there was a little bit of flooding for her, but not too much. She's drying out. Last Saturday morning, I was preparing to head to the airport in Philadelphia because I left a car there with my daughter and I needed to fly back. So I was putting my luggage together in my downtown hotel room when on the television, the local news announced this. This morning is the annual Naked Philly Bike Race where hundreds of people will ride bicycles through downtown Philadelphia without clothes on. Really, I said back to the television for crying out loud, this morning, this very morning when I have to drive through downtown Philadelphia, this will be a challenge. It'll be a challenge and it could quite possibly be disturbing, right? <laughs> Challenging and disturbing. Challenging and disturbing is exactly what we should think when we hear a parable from the Bible. We must remember that Jesus' audience responded to parables in all likelihood with either wide eyes or a roll of their eyes. Vanderbilt Divinity School professor Amy Jill Levine teaches that our reaction to a parable from the Bible should be resistance, not acceptance. Jesus told parables to challenge. He told parables to disturb, to unlock thinking. Dr. Levine wrote this, we might be better off thinking less about what a parable means and more about what it does. Does it remind us? Does it provoke us? Does it refine or confront us? Because that's where the magic of a parable is. A magic of the parable is in what it does to us, where it disturbs us. The thing about the neighbor parable in chapter 10 of Luke is that it's so familiar and, and its interpretation, its meaning is so agreed upon that we understand a good Samaritan to just be a charitable do-gooder, simply someone who helps. There are hospitals named Good Samaritan in many cities, in Baltimore, in Cincinnati, in Los Angeles, just to name a few. In Fredericksburg, Texas, there is a Good Samaritan Center whose mission is to provide affordable health care. Samaritan's Purse is a global organization that provides uh, aid to those who are hurting, those who are in need. And then in San Antonio, there's a place called Good Sam. And Good Sam is short for Good Samaritan Community Services. Good Sam supports people in poverty. These appropriations of the word Samaritan from the New Testament are all positive. <laughs> What's not to like about helping somebody? 
That's a good thing. What's not to like about charity, about helping a stranger? They, these are good things and they disturb practically no one. But I suspect there's more to this parable than just a good story, a good feel-good story about being kind to other people, about charity. Using Dr. Levine as my guide, I wondered this week, what is it in this parable that stirs me up? What is it that upsets me? What is it that makes my eyes open wide? One of the first things I considered is where I am in this parable. Which character do I most identify with in this story? Now, I don't want to suggest to you that there is a right answer to this. I'm all for bringing my own self to the scripture and letting the scripture read me. I certainly can see myself in the lawyer. I can see myself in the priest and the Levite, even in the innkeeper and a bit in the donkey. But there is a wrong answer here. There's a wrong answer. At least it's not the first place that we should land in this scene because it makes the whole story just too simplistic, too easy when I immediately make myself the third traveler, the Samaritan. You know, the storyteller's expectation most certainly was not that we would automatically see ourselves as the Samaritan rendering aid. In fact, the obvious answer for a first century Jewish person, and really for us also, is that we're the fellow on the side of the road. We're the one who's beat up, who's not identified by anything else than they are a traveler. He or she could be rich, or they could be poor, slave or free, faithful or not so much. The person on the road is some person, but the person on the road is every one of us. It's every person. And we all know, all that we know about that person is that they're traveling. They're traveling and they fall victim to a crime. And so when we hear this story, we might ask ourselves, have we ever been beat up? Have we ever been abandoned, robbed of our money or of our dignity? And the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yes, we all have been. My current read of the culture right now is that we're all pretty beat up right now. We're all this traveler on the side of the road. This is a story about you and it's a story about me. And most disturbing about this story is that it is a story about where our help comes from when we are beat up when we are in need. It's not from benevolent do-gooders. It's not from kind strangers. Jesus' contemporaries did not think of Samaritans as strangers. <laughs> they did not think of them as unknown. They were far from unknown. The Samaritans were the enemy. And there was a long history of the Samaritans being the other to the Jews. In the Hebrew Bible, when King Solomon dies, Israel is split into the northern and southern kingdoms because of the arrogance, because of the misguided leadership of the crown. The southern kingdom, Judah, kept its capital in Jerusalem with a temple there. And the northern kingdom made its capital in Samaria, 
The northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians, the nasty Assyrians, in 722 BCE, who moved people from other conquered nations, other places that they conquered, into that region. And the resulting population, blended population, took its name from the capital. They called themselves the Samaritans. They took their name from the capital of Samaria. And the Jews and the Samaritans then built this really long history of distrusting one another and mistreating one another. They each saw themselves as the true inheritors of the promises that were given to Abraham. And they each saw the other to be misunderstanding the faith. And they saw that misunderstanding to be so great that it was offensive. The Samaritans constructed their own temple. They constructed a temple at Mount Gerasim. And you know what? That temple stood for a couple hundred years and then it was destroyed by the Jews. The Jews destroyed their temple. Many Jews believed that it was the Samaritans who were, who were responsible for the death of the prophet Isaiah. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote that in the year 9, Samaritans scattered bones in the temple in Jerusalem during Passover. That would be very, very offensive to the Jews. And in the year 50, a group of Jews who were traveling on their way to Jerusalem were attacked by Samaritans. Some of them were killed. And so then a group of Jewish zealots returned the favor, and they attacked and burned a Samaritan village. See, there was this divide between the two groups, between the Jews and the Samaritans, that was at first geographical, and it became ideological, and then they added insult on top of injury, was heaped upon that divide to the point that the two groups just couldn't stand one another. The two groups demonized each other. So when Jesus tells this parable... Those who are hearing this parable know that to receive help from a Samaritan doesn't make one's day. Even when you're beat up on the side of the road, that's the last person you want help from. The way Dr. Amy Jill Levine describes it is to say this, those who want to kill you may be the only ones who save you. Those who want to kill you may in fact be the only ones who save you. And while this is very disturbing news, it probably was not unfamiliar news to Jesus' disciples. In the Hebrew Bible, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, King Ahaz of Judah, who has no redeeming characteristics, King Ahaz has no redeeming characteristics, gets his people into a battle where the survivors are carried off to Samaria. But there's this prophet. There's a prophet named Oded who meets the returning army on the road. And he says to them, because the the Lord was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand. But you've slaughtered them in a rage that reaches the heavens. And now you intend to make those people your slaves. Aren't you also guilty of sins against the Lord? Listen to me. Send back the Israelites is what the prophet says to the Samaritans, send them back. And what happens? 
what happens is that the Samaritans, the clueless, the heathen, listen. They listen to the prophet and they send the people back. Second Chronicles chapter 28 verse 15 says that they took the prisoners, the Jewish prisoners, they clothed all who were naked, they provided them with sandals, food, and drink, and healing balm. And all of those who were weak, they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, which is the city of Palms, and then they returned to Samaria. You know, it's hard for me to believe, knowing the history between the Jews and the Samaritans, it's hard for me to believe that the Samaritans hear the word of God and they put it into action, but they do. They do this in the Bible. They listen to God, they listen to the prophet, and they do what the prophet says. The Samaritans do this. This is, I think, the main thing that God asks of us, that God asks of the faithful, that we listen to what God says and we heed the call of compassion. And we are to be reminded by this story, this parable that Jesus tells, that we are not the only ones who hear God's voice. We're not the only ones who hear God's voice And we are not the only ones who can put God's direction into action. The ones we least expect to be holy, the ones we least expect to do the holy thing, are in fact the image of God right in front of us. We often think that the church should be in the judgment business, issuing decrees of right and wrong. But I think that this story in Luke's gospel reminds us that we don't know enough to be in the judgment business. Instead, compassion and empathy are the wisest course. It was brought to my attention this week that there are some contemporary preachers who are teaching empathy is a sin. I couldn't believe it, but I Googled it, and sure enough, it's true. There are articles, there are blogs, there are sermons out there that have been written in the last year or two saying that empathy and compassion are sins. New Testament professor Scott McKnight recently responded to this trend in Christianity Today, and Scott McKnight is a Baptist. He responded to this trend by writing this. This may be the most unwise piece of pastoral theology I've seen in my lifetime. Pastors without empathy are not pastoring. Labeling empathy as sinful seems to be a power play worthy of controlling narcissists who want control over being sidetracked by somebody else's pain. Jesus calls us to be sidetracked by the pain of other people. To be a neighbor is how he puts it to the lawyer. To show mercy 
as God is merciful. Dr. Martin Luther King preached on this parable shortly before his death. And in his sermon, he said this, The priest and the Levite were thinking, What will happen to me if I stop and help? But the Samaritan turned that thinking upside down. The Samaritan asked, What will happen to him if I don't stop? That's compassion. That's mercy. That's focusing on the other person. You know, I believe that we don't just luck into our neighbors or go out and find our neighbors because they look just exactly like us or they think exactly like us. Instead, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we make our neighbors. And anyone, everyone out there is a candidate capable of being a neighbor. As we prepare to celebrate communion this day, I want to invite you again to pick up the sacraments in the basket over there. Um, It's just one container that has the wafer on the top and the cup of juice on the bottom. And if you are at home and worshiping with us, a piece of toast A cup of coffee might come in handy. Would you pray with me? (laughs) Blessed are you, Lord our God, you are ruler of the universe. You bring forth bread from the earth. You formed us in your image and you breathed into us the breath of life. When we turn away and our love fails, your love remains steadfast. In the fullness of time, you gave your son, Jesus the Christ, to be our savior. He came among us as a servant, clearly revealing your love and your ways. We seek to be a part of those ways, to follow those ways. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, our Lord and Savior took bread and gave thanks to you. He broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood. It's a new covenant. It's poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. Would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts, that in the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this wine, we may know the presence of the living Christ. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, and in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever.